Please take your Bibles and join me again in the book of Judges, today chapter 7, Judges chapter 7. As we've mentioned before, we're working our way inch by inch, story by story, narrative by narrative through the book of Judges. We've uh, had several interruptions in this series and there'll be a few more to come, but uh, I'm delighted to continue to reflect on the implications of the book of Judges for our current cultural circumstance. You'll recall that the theme of the book of Judges is that uh, Israel is, uh, finds itself historically in between the season of the, the last great uh, deliverer, Joshua, and the first king, Saul. And in that interim period, roughly 200 to 225 years, uh, we have the book of Judges. And a recurring refrain late in the book is, uh, Israel did what was right in its own eyes. Israel is doing whatever it wants for as long as it wants until God intervenes and makes them miserable in the pursuit of themselves. And by the way, a lesson to be learned for all of us is that the more you focus on you, the more miserable you are. Your flesh tells you the more that you focus on you, the happier you will be. But I assure you, friend, the reason ultimately why there is so much unhappiness is because people are so self-absorbed. Give a guy a job helping someone else, and he'll be the happiest guy you ever met. But you give a guy focusing on himself, he's going to be the most disappointed person you've ever met because he cannot possibly fill up his tank because we have some mighty big tanks. And you can't fill it up. You don't have the, you don't have the resources. You don't have the time. You don't have the energy. And the minute you think you've done all you can, you look around and find somebody else who's not helping you with your tank. And the reason they're not, by the way, is because they're too busy with their tank. I will tell you, dear friends, I'm not your psychiatrist or your psychologist or your anything else except your pastor. But the more you focus on you, the unhappier you are. Which is antithetical to the entire Christian message, by the way. Because the Christian message is about denying self taking up your cross and following Christ. And if you're Peter, you don't get to set the agenda. If you're John, you're pretty important, but you don't get to set the agenda. If you're James, you're a big deal, but you don't get to set the agenda. Because you're a disciple of someone else. And only one sets the agenda. And you're not him. So let us remember that as we reflect on the book of Judges. The problem here is that they want to set their own agenda. And they end up bringing great harm to themselves. And it continues even to this day. Our culture is adrift. And the reason it is is because we are totally absorbed with ourselves. It is a problem. And it's a problem that cannot be fixed by simply 
telling people to turn over a new leaf. There is a root cause, and ultimately that root cause is found in the absence of God, in the absence of a relationship with this great holy God that's only possible through Christ. I pray that we will continue to embrace Christ and look to Christ. So we broke uh, this study of the book of Judges in half a week ago or two weeks ago because we came to the person of Gideon. There are two judges. Let me start at the beginning. There are 12 judges named in the book of Judges. Six of them are considered minor. We, we barely know their names. Six of them are actually given paragraphs. Two of them are given chapters. Gideon, to, today we'll focus on the last two chapters of the three chapters that are given to Gideon. Gideon is perhaps the most well-known of all the judges. Uh, second to Gideon would be Samson. We'll get to Samson eventually. Uh, Samson also given almost three chapters. So these are major judges, and the Bible gives them great, if you will, notoriety. So you're familiar with them. There are many that you are not, and we're covering several of those along the way. But today we, we come again to Gideon because Gideon's story is, is multifaceted and has major implications. I mentioned last time that uh, I could preach a two-hour sermon. None of you would be here by the time I got through, so that defeats the purpose. So I've decided to break it up. And the uh, good news is the sermon today is not an hour. That's right. I have many friends who watch this service online and they rebuke me regularly. Many of you are nicer than my friends, and you don't rebuke, rebuke me. I, but I know you're thinking it, and uh, so I'm going to try to move along. So last time we considered Gideon's story in chapter 6 of Judges. Today we'll consider chapter 7 and only a tip of the hat to chapter 8. But I want to show you what's going on. This is perhaps the most famous aspect of Gideon, the most uh, well-known. So we're just going to read chapter 7 and uh, remind you of several things that we read here. Let's follow along in verse 1. Then Jerubal, or Jerubel, that is Gideon. You remember he is uh, renamed in a, in a sense, given a nickname in chapter 6 because he contends against Baal. Baal is the Canaanite fertility god and uh, he contends against him and he's given this Name And this name, Jerubbaal, or Jerubabel, depending on how you like to pronounce it. By the way, all the people who know how to pronounce it are dead. So you just want to call him Jerub, that's fine. Uh, but Jerubabel, uh, which is actually the other name for Gideon, uh, is, is the same guy. So all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are uh, with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into to their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of his 32,000 men returned, and only 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the, to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of 
whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, uh, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand. And let all the others go every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it to your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outskirts, or outposts, of the armed men who were in, in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number, as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. Behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, came to the tent, and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, There is no other, or rather this is no other, than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. That's 3 a.m., by the way. When they were just to set the watch, they blew the trumpets. Excuse me, that's midnight. That's the, the middle watch. and begins at midnight, midnight to 3. And they blew the trumpets, smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their hands, their left hands, the torches, and in their right hands, the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the, bar, the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and captures the waters against them as far as Beth Barah, as also the Jordan. 
So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Bar and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. And they killed Oreb at the rock of, of Oreb. I suspect it was not named that until he died there, which is one way to get something named after you. And Zeb, they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Again, I don't believe they called it that until he died there. Then they pursued Midian. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. This is the seventh chapter of the book of Judges. This is the middle chapter, three chapters, dialoguing about the life of Gideon. What are we to think about this story? Well, let's highlight a couple of things and then try to draw three implications. You'll note that, uh, first of all, God is with Gideon. He has uh, been raised up because of God. God has put his, uh, if you will, mantle of responsibility on him. All of that was uh, a part of chapter 6 last time. We will not belabor that. But God is with Gideon. And God has given him the task of putting the Midianites to flight. His job is to save Israel from the Midianites. Now, if you're tracking with this story, you'll remember that the only reason the Midianites are there is because God allowed them to come. In other words, God is somehow a part of their coming, and God is now going to be a part of their leaving. You might ask, well, God could have just done all of this without the Midianites. Well, of course, God can do whatever He wants in whatever way He wants and with whatever means He wants, but in this case... The focus here is not on the Midianites. The focus is on the people of God. I want to remind you of that this morning in your own life. If you're the child of God, the focus of God is upon you. Think of it in your own life. If you have children or grandchildren, you keep track of them. But you have very little energy to keep track of somebody else's brood. Somebody else's challenges, somebody else's responsibilities. That's not, that's not your family. It's not your people. You keep track of your children, and you should. Well, who's God going to take care of? God's going to take care of his children. You say, well, are you saying that God doesn't care about the rest of the world? Of course not. Of course not. But the point, of course, is God is going to give a special affection for his own children. In this case, the Bible is about God's work with you. You are not a stranger to God. God is not disconnected from you. And the book of Judges and every other book in the Bible scream this information to us again and again and again. I have you in my clutches and I am not going to let you go. I'm not going to get sloppy or lazy. I am faithful to my pledge to shepherd you, to love you, to care for you, to protect you, to use you, and to prosper you in ways that you don't even understand. This is the hand of God in your life. So these are the stories, these, these narratives that we read are stories that tell us about the fact that God cares for his people and he's going to shepherd them, in this case, discipline them, in ways that are painful or sorrowful and yet are loving. He is loving his people by bringing about the Midianites to bring this sorrow upon them. 
because he wants them to return home. Return home. (coughs) Maybe more than anything else today, we need to hear that message. That the great need of our life is to go home. To go home to God. To stop living on the fringes. If you find yourself adrift from God, go home. And this is God's ambition for for Israel in Judges. It's the ambition for, uh, for his people today, even the people in this room. Let's, let's do the first thing, and that's to go home to God. Let's make sure we take care of that. So he's going to use Gideon against the Midianites. Now we're going to find out, uh, as we read momentarily in chapter 8, that uh, the Midianite army is enormous, more than 100,000. It's interesting here that, uh, that Gideon only has 30,000. Now, if you're a military strategist, and few of us are, uh, you would not go into battle. Uh, but if you did, you'd go reluctantly. If you had 30,000 men against more than 100,000, you would say, our chances are slim and none. We're not really in a situation here that leans itself to victory. But God says, oh, yes, you are. But I can't uh, because you, you have me, right? You have me. And if, if you have me, it doesn't really matter how many you have, so I'm going to prove that to you, and I'm not going to let you win a victory with 30,000 men because you're going to say somehow it was because of the strength of our army. You'll remember David's sin. David is later. He, we haven't come to David's story in the Bible yet, but David later, his great sin is that he wants to number his people. He takes a census of his people, and God brings judgment against David. Why? Because David felt like that there was strength in knowing how many people he had. But the sin of David's life there was that his strength is in the Lord. It doesn't matter if your army is two or two million. If the Lord is against you, you're going to lose. And if the Lord is for you, you can have 300 against 100,000 and you're going to win. That's the message that he wants Gideon to feel. That's the message that he wants Israel to feel. So he makes that very clear in verse 2. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites in your hands. So he goes and he says, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 of them go home. Two-thirds of them go home. He left with 10,000. Then he has this deal where he takes them down to the spring. And he says, if, if, if however they drink the water, if they fall down on their face, kneel and bury their face in the water. Uh, by the way, if you go to Israel, you can go to this very spring, still functioning there. So you can get the lay of this land so forth. A, every trip to Israel takes you to Gideon's spring. Uh, and, and you can see it, it's easy. You just walk right up. You just kneel down, bury your face in the water, drink as much as you want. Most of the army did exactly that. 300 of them basically kept their head up, reached down, cupped the water, drank it like an animal, uh, lapping it out of their, their, the palm or the cup of their hand. So they, they, the, the theory is they kept their eyes vigilant. You know, they didn't bury their head in the water. They kept their eyes vigilant. The answer is the Bible doesn't tell us why those folks were chosen, except that only 300 of them did that. Uh, preachers have extrapolated all kinds of reasons over the years. Commentators have, have made hay over this particular story. I, I, all of that is a reach. All of that is a guess. The Bible doesn't tell us why one of those is more sacred or one of those does anything except uh, God just needed 300. 
because somebody had to blow trumpets and somebody had to break jars. So 300 men go against 100,000 plus. Then he gives Gideon an experience. He says, I want you to go down there and, and listen to the guards. The guards are going to be talking, and I want you to hear their conversation because they want to encourage you. Isn't it interesting how God offers these little moments of humanity for us? Is, is it true that Gideon needed encouragement? Absolutely. I, I think of that today. I don't care how brave you are, tough you are, strong you are, how experienced you are with the Lord, you get discouraged. You get lonely. You get overwhelmed. You feel outnumbered. You feel like it's just not going to go well. There is something within us, call it the flesh, that gets weak. And for some of us, it gets weak a lot. And we wonder, why is God not encouraging me? Well, maybe he is, friend, and you're just not paying attention. In this case, he says, I want you to take your servant, this fellow named Pura, and I want you to go down there and I want you to eavesdrop on the conversation of these two guards who are standing at the edge of the camp. And one of the guards just had a dream about a barley cake that comes rolling into a camp and runs over a tent and flattens the tent. Now, I don't know about you. I didn't dream about that last night. You didn't either, I suspect. And I'm pretty sure that if you dreamed about, you know, a loaf of bread knocking down a tent, you probably wouldn't say, we're doomed. That wouldn't be your takeaway. We've lost. We're going to die. Loaf of bread, tent, die. I mean, those three things just don't go together to me. But that's precisely what the dream meant. So God not only provides the dream, God provides the interpreter of the dream in this case. And he says, this can only mean one thing. Gideon is coming. He's going to flatten the Midianite tents. We're doomed. And Gideon is overhearing this conversation. He walks away and he says, we're going to win. Yeah, but Gideon, we only got 300 guys. We're going to lose. There's no way this is going to work. Of course, Gideon says, well, of course it is. And he comes up with this scheme. Scheme. I'm going to give you a torch and a trumpet. And I want you to break this jar holding the torch. And I want you to blow the trumpet. And then I want you to shout this battle cry. And that, that battle cry is the, the end of verse 18 there. For the Lord and Gideon. So he's going to have three groups of 100 men. So sort of north, south, and east around the camp. And you're going to hear, it's going to feel like there's this huge crowd coming there, huge crowd coming there, huge crowd coming there. And it's going to feel like there's a lot of people. It's the middle of the night, right? It's midnight. And he said, when when all this happens, God's going to give us the victory. And we're not going to fire a shot. Not a shot. We're going to break jars and we're going to shout. That's what we're going to do. There's no military strategy on planet Earth ever so foolish to think that somehow 300 men divided into three companies can break jars and shout, blow trumpets, and somehow defeat an army of 100,000. But that's exactly what happens. The Bible says that they did that and they began to turn on one another. The Scripture says that they killed each other, the, verse 21, every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out 
and fled. So these guys never even advanced. They, these, these three groups of 100 just stood there and shouted, blew trumpets, never advanced whatsoever. And the, the rest of the army uh, turned on one another. It's the middle of the night. And they began to think, well, the, I don't know you. It's the middle of the night. I'm going to take a sword and kill you. And the Bible indicates that more than 100,000 men died. All of this in chapter 8. So I want to give you three implications. In order to, to hear the third, we'll have to look at chapter 8. But I want to show you the first two that are found in this chapter quickly. First of all, I want to encourage you today, don't despise your weakness in the service of God. Don't despise your weakness in the service of God. You know, the Bible has much to say about human weakness. Gideon's story is an example of one of the circumstances that says much about human weakness. In this case, God raises up a man named Gideon. You'll remember Gideon is uh, kind of a uh, nondescript guy. If you, if you go back to Gideon's call in chapter 6, uh, the, the, the scripture details that Gideon is of the small tribe and of, he is the least of his clan. In other words, Gideon is not, uh, he's not the guy who looks the part. He's not the guy who has the earthly credentials. He's not voted the most likely to succeed or be king or be warrior or be judge or anything else. Nobody else in Gideon's life is uh, circled around Gideon and said, you, you've got the it factor. They're not saying that about Gideon. Reminds us of Moses again, much as we've already said, much about Gideon's life and the call of Gideon mirrors the call of Moses. You remember God calls Moses. Well, who is Moses? Well, Moses says, I, I can't even speak. That's all right. I got that worked out. You got a brother. He's really good. He's going to do your speaking. Well, you know, you know, and, and so Moses begins to make uh, objections because Moses is not qualified, humanly speaking. He's not going to be picked out of a lineup and said, well, you, there's the guy that's going to deliver Israel. Neither is Gideon. Again, consider your own life. Are the people around you bragging on you about your great strengths for the Lord, in the Lord, with the Lord? I uh, periodically take myself back to the day that I sensed a call to the ministry personally. And I realized that I, I, I have no credentials. I, ministry? Come on. I, uh, I had no ambition for being in the ministry and no ambition for serving the Lord, caring for the Lord's people. No, none of that. I, I didn't want to do that. The only preachers I knew were not who I wanted to be. I didn't want to grow up and be that. I didn't want eyes on me all the time. I didn't want to live in a fishbowl. Oh, I could go on and on and on. I won't belabor the point. But I had a lot of reasons why God was making a mistake, but God has favored, blessed, cared for, shepherded, led me and Susan, and he's leading you differently than me, but nonetheless in the same direction, right? We're all going where we're going, and we're going there because the Lord took, a, if you will, a lump of clay and fashioned us into what he wanted us to be. Now, the problem with our lump of clay is we have weakness in that clay. There's, there's a soft spot. There's a difficulty. We're, we're too shy or we're too, we talk too much 
or we were insecure or we're this or that or we're this or that or this or that. Does it, does it matter what your this or that really is? The point, of course, is we are weak and our flesh is weak. We find ourselves without resource. And in this case, Gideon had weakness, but God supplied him with an army of 32,000. But God refused to allow Gideon to take credit or the people to take credit for the victory that he was about to give. So he self-imposed a weakness, an additional weakness on Gideon. He took away all his fighting men. And he left him with 300 trumpet-blowing pot breakers. I want to tell you, friend, that the weakness in your life is an instrument of God. It is a tool that God intends to use in your life. Let me show you an illustration of this in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9. Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 23. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. For I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So it doesn't matter today. Your strength is a strength, unless it's not. Your riches are a strength, unless they're not. Your wisdom is a strength, unless it's not. And I assure you, friend, God is the one who gave you all of that. You wouldn't have any strength or riches or wisdom or anything else. God had not given you life and sustained your life and prospered your life, but let not any one of us think that somehow those things make us strong. The reason we are being used of the Lord is because the Lord has his hand on us. The Lord favors us with his kindness, and he uses us, and he takes us, you, me, people like us, just regular people, and he uses them in the, in the work of God. And he does it in conversation after conversation, in service after service, in deed after deed, faithfully uses us year after year in such a way as to bring glory to his name. You say, well, I like to be like Gideon. Well, we'll get to you in a minute, friend. All right? Be careful what you wish for. Be very careful. Remind always of this story of Paul's experience, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, of his own thorn in the flesh. You know this story. I won't belabor it too long, but I'm always reminded of this, where the apostle says in chapter 12, I, I only boast in my weakness. And he tells this story beginning uh, in verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, I always ask this question. You know, when you, read the, when you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, do you think he's conceited? Well, some do. But that's because they've got a bias against Paul. But you can't read, you can't read Paul's letters and come away and say, that, that man's conceited. You can't do that. So he said, well, how, you might ask, well, how did, how did a guy who's been given so much keep from being conceited? 
And the answer is because God made him weak. He gave him a weakness. Or to use another, God gave him a limp. God programs a frailty. God programs what the world would say is unimpressive in his people. He does this with Paul, verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Remember, he had been caught up into heaven and seen these seen the Lord and so forth. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I want to ask you this pointedly. Has your Christian experience become dull? Dry? Has your Christian experience become less powerful? Maybe it's because you are not relying on the Lord. Maybe the reason you're dull, bored, distant, adrift from God is because you've taken God out of the equation. The reality is God has programmed you to be weak in some way. And he intends for that weakness to continue to remind you how desperately you need God. And the fact that you're feeling unfulfilled or distant from God is not a weakness in God, but rather it is an exaltation in you. It is a, you, you are seeking glory or seeking peace or seeking satisfaction or seeking, seeking notoriety, as it were, in such a way that you don't realize that it's not about you friend. It is about the Lord in you. Don't despise weakness in the service of God. Let me give you one last example of this. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus. In the end, you know, Jesus' adversaries were, first of all, the religious leaders of his days. Those are Jewish men. And Jesus was no match for those Jewish men, it seemed. They had the power to arrest him, which they did in the Garden of Gethsemane. They had the power to beat him, which they did in the middle of the night in the home of the high priest. And they had the power to convict him of capital crimes against the Jewish state, which they did in a kangaroo court on the night that he was betrayed. But they did not have the power to crucify him because the power of capital punishment resided only in the Romans because the Jews were experiencing an occupation by Roman soldiers. 
So they had to deliver him the next morning to the governor, Pontius Pilate. And Jesus, who was no match for the Jewish leaders, it seemed, was no match for Pilate either. Because Pilate, as you'll recall, delivered Jesus to be crucified. And he was. He was crucified. The Son of Almighty God submitted himself to the will of God in his humanity, and he died. He died. And you might say, as others have said, Jesus was no match for the Jewish and Roman authorities. Jesus was a weakling. To which I would say, well, you got half of that right. Jesus was a weakling. In his humanity, he had no authority over the Jewish leaders. In his humanity, he had no authority over the Roman leaders. And he submitted to that authority in his humanity. But Jesus, of course, is not merely human. Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. And he has, as an ally, unseen to Jewish leaders and unseen to Roman leaders. He has an ally on his side. Just like Gideon had an ally on his side, he had 300 trumpet-blowing pot breakers and one God, which made it all go. And friend, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day because God was on his side and because that which the world deems as weakness is in fact his great strength. He is a lamb who, who dies before his slaughterers, slain before his slaughterers. But God raises him from the dead in order that we might look to him and be saved. Think of that. God uses the weakness of Christ in order to bring about strength in you. Don't despise weakness in the service of God. You feeling overwhelmed, you feeling outnumbered, you feeling like you don't really have what it takes, well, you're in good company. So do the rest of us. And let's get down to business. Let's quit feeling sorry for ourselves and let's look to God, hope in God, trust in God. There's a second thing we see here in this story, and that is you must recognize the hand of the Lord in your success. Recognize the hand of the Lord in your success. Now, this is the obvious point of the story, isn't it? The whole reason we go through this elaborate force reduction for Gideon is because he's not going to let Gideon win with an army that might have a chance. Instead, he's going to give him 300 trumpet-blowing potbreakers, and he has no chance, except he does. So in the end, it's all about grace. We're reminded that the battle in Gideon's life, as well as in our own life, is not ours. It's the Lord's battle. God is the one true warrior for his people. Let me show you this in the book of Exodus. We're studying Exodus on Sunday nights. If you're not in the habit of coming, I encourage you to come, be a part of this. Exodus 14 is the Red Sea experience. So Pharaoh is defeated. He's now at the bottom of the Red Sea with all of his army and his chariots. And we pick up the story in Exodus 15. What does Moses do immediately after Pharaoh is killed? The answer is he sings. He celebrates. He has a song. So here's the song of Moses in Exodus 15, just three verses. 
Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Listen, friend, recognize the hand of the Lord. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is doing battle, even now, in the heavenlies. You have no idea the skirmishes that are happening in the heavenlies right now. God against Satan. The angels of God against the demons of the devil. You have no idea the principalities and powers that God is at war against on your behalf. God's not interested in the size of the Midianite army. He's not in, interested in the size of your uh, uh, antagonist either. He's not worried about that. You got money troubles? God just sells a few cattle on a thousand hills and he take care of that. You got sickness? You got relationship trials? Of course you do. You're people. What do you do in those things? You say, well, I don't know how we're going to break through here. The battle is the Lord's. The Lord is on your side. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord does battle. The Lord can change hearts. The Lord can break through the defenses that people erect. The Lord is stronger than the flesh of man. The Lord is wiser than the wisdom of man. What would force a trained Midianite army of more than 100,000 warriors to turn the sword on themselves in the middle of the night? Well, you could say it was 300 torch-bearing, trumpet-blowing pot breakers. Or you could say that God used them to sort of set the stage for him to bring confusion. Because the victory is not about the 300 men. The point of the story, friend, is the victory is about the Lord. Recognize the hand of the Lord in your success. I think of it this way. As the Bible declares it in 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's that whole weakness turned to power again. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power, you're being guarded. Christ is our victory. Christ is our hope. Just as the resurrection is the exclamation point on God's promise, so it is we today can be greatly encouraged knowing that the Lord is for us and the Lord is with us. I hope today you're looking to the Lord in your life. There is a third thing quickly, and it comes from chapter 8. I just want to read one paragraph in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is the final chapter of Gideon's story, and it involves another skirmish, and I will not belabor that. You can read it later. But I'm going to come to the end of the chapter, and I want to show you what happens. Verse 22. And the point that I want to make here is simply this. Beware the danger of even God-given success. Beware the danger of even God-given success. 
Look at this story, verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us. They want to make, a, make him king. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. By the way, you'll remember that because of the next, uh, next judge we look at. That will come back. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. They spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Beside the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod. For those of you who are not fluent with Bible language, an ephod is an apron. There is only one command in the Bible to make an apron, and that was the apron worn by the high priest. So the ephod was when the high priest would wear these vestments, these are the first instance of vestments uh, in the Bible, when he wear this apron, so to speak, and had the stones for each of the 12 tribes, precious stones, and a very elaborate thing, so forth. And the ephod represented the presence of God on the body of the high priest of Israel. There was one apron in Israel, and it was the apron worn by the high priest. Now I want to ask you this question. What is Gideon doing making an apron? Well, the answer is he's blowing it. Watch this. And Gideon made an ephod of it. This is, he's got all these gold, these precious ornaments. They stole off camels and dead kings. And he put it in his city in Oprah. Remember, he's from a town called Oprah. And then this phrase. And all Israel hoard after it there. And he became a snare to Gideon and his family. What is Gideon doing making an apron when God had told him there's one apron and it's worn by the high priest and it's at the place where the tabernacle is? Because you see, the Bible is not short in reminding us that people are flawed, even the best people, even your leaders. <laughs> I hear people say all the time about preachers, you know, I'm a preacher, so preachers, people dump their preacher stories on me. They'll tell me about preachers. You know, I, I really like that preacher, but I thought that preacher was great, but, you know, I really thought he had a great ministry, but it's always that but that gets you, you know. They want to talk about his weakness. They want to talk about his failure. They want to talk about his difficulty, whatever. And I'm not here to defend that, or, or, but I'm telling you, be careful. Be careful. Because your preacher will let you down. Be careful. Your parents will let you down. Be careful. Your spouse will let you down. Be careful. Your government leaders will let you down. Be careful. Your neighbor will let you down. Be careful. 
you will let others down. Be careful, even your prophets and your judges will let you down. Because you see, success is a difficult thing. Gideon's story is one of the most fantastic stories in the Bible. But in the end, the last section of his life, he makes an ephod, an apron, and he turns it into, for the lack of something, he turns it into a shrine. He takes it home, and the scripture says that Israel came and whored after it. They, they prostituted themselves before this apron because it represented God through Gideon and so forth. And Gideon and his family were offended by it again and again and again and again. They constantly were fighting that. Beware the danger of even God-given success. You know, sometimes when God blesses and cares for us, the, the very thing that God did for us turns out to be a curse. The very thing that God did through us turns out to be a burden. The very money that God gave us or the very experience God gave us or the very success or notoriety that God gave us turns out to be a curse. It turns out to be the worst thing that ever happened. I'm not advocating for the lottery, but have you ever read the stories of these people who win millions and millions and millions of dollars? Virtually their lives end up in the dump because the money ruins them. I can't help but think of this passage in 1 John chapter 2. The scripture says, do not love the world. Verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, and there are these three things. The King James used the word lust, so I like that phrase, so I'm going to say it that way. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of possessions. Again, the King James says the pride of life. Okay, we, we all agree that the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, those are clearly bad, right? But the pride of life, now we could, we could spin that in such a way that we'd say, you know, you want to be proud of what God has done in your life, right? You want to be proud of what you've been able to achieve, that's right? You want to be proud of righteous accomplishments and righteous achievements and so forth. And, and, and that's right. That's absolutely right. But the problem, of course, is when you begin to associate yourself or your identity or your experiences with that and say, well, you know, you, you can't, this can't happen to me because I had this experience or that can't happen to me because I had that experience or, or these things shouldn't be happening to me because I've done all these things or I've accomplished all these things or I've been all these things. The reality is, friend, when you were born, you weren't wearing any clothes. When you were born, you were about this long. And you needed someone to change you and feed you and burp you and and all those things. And okay, you got a little longer. You got a little longer. You got a little longer. Then you got a little taller, taller, taller. Now you're an adult. Now you think you're big stuff. But the reality is you were nothing. And God made you something. 
And there's not a man among us, not a woman among us, who doesn't labor with the thing called ego. And we think we are important. And the scripture says the pride of life is something you labor against all your days. All your days. You think you're a big deal. Well, maybe you are. But the only reason you're a big deal is because you were holding the pot and shouting the cry. Because in the kindness of God, your little 300 was no match for 100,000 Midianites. But you won. And God raised you up. And he gave you an intellect. And he gave you a personality. And he gave you a life. He's given you everything you've ever, ever ever had beware the danger of thinking that what you have and what you've done or the reputation you've earned is about you because you might probably won't go home and build an apron and worship that thing But it might show up in a thousand other ways. And they'll all be destructive in your life. If you turn anything, including your own reputation, into an idol, well, friend, it's still an idol. Beware the danger of even God-given success. There's really only one hero. His name's not Gideon. His name's not Samson, who we'll study later. His name is Jesus. He's the only one that conquered death and put an end to the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. He's the only one. There's only one worth living for. And there's only one worth dying for. So go, friends, and live and die for Jesus. Because he did that for you. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your tender mercies today. How we love you. How we thank you. How we need you. Be magnified and glorified in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray. If you're here today and you never put your trust in Christ, our Next Steps Corner is right over here behind that monitor. We'd love to talk to you. Our pastors and elders will be there as soon as we're dismissed.